Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Christine Sue. Christine is an entrepreneur and CEO of PastureMap, a Silicon Valley startup that creates cutting-edge ranch management software. PastureMap helps ranchers plan grazing, track forage, monitor herd performance, manage record-keeping, and much more, all with the goal of saving ranchers time and making their operations more profitable. In the business of ranching, a business that has not changed all that much in the past hundred years, PastureMap is a true breakthrough. And Christine's innovative mindset and infectious enthusiasm are two of the root causes of the company's success. Christine grew up in an entrepreneurial family, and she's had a lifelong curiosity about agriculture and the importance of food production. After building an extremely impressive resume that includes undergraduate and graduate degrees from Stanford, a stint at McKinsey & Company, and expertise in private equity, Christine combined her business expertise with her passion for agriculture and formed PastureMap. PastureMap makes active or holistic management a more realistic option for ranchers, which has ripple effects far beyond the ranchers' bottom lines, including healthier grass, increased biodiversity, stronger communities, and continued viable domestic food production. As you'll hear in our conversation, Christine is a truly dynamic woman whose passion for agriculture is matched by her intellect and entrepreneurial acumen. We discuss all the details of PastureMap and how she built the business from a simple idea into a successful enterprise. We discuss her personal background and why she initially became so curious about agriculture around the world. We also chat about the ins and outs of active ranch management and how a holistic approach to grazing can have far-reaching benefits beyond agriculture. As you'd expect, Christine has plenty of excellent book recommendations related to agriculture, which I know you'll all enjoy. For all you ranchers out there, Christine is offering a 10% off coupon for a year's subscription to PastureMap, and you can claim it by using the code PRAIRIE at the PastureMap website. Check out the episode notes for all the details. But whether you're a rancher or not, I know you'll enjoy this episode. Christine is a perfect example of someone who has merged her passion and expertise into a financially successful business that's making the world a better place. Hope you enjoy. Yeah, PastureMap is a software platform that helps with grazing management and saves ranchers and their team's time. So it's... Um, it works on iOS, your iPhone or Android, and it also works on your computer. Um, on the mobile phones, it all works offline if you're out in the field. And you can take photos of pre and post grazing. Um, you can plan out moves and have that sync to everybody's phones on your ranch team. Um, you can draw pastures, subdivide them, and then um, record all the moves. Um, and... When you get back into cell reception or back into your office, it all syncs up. So the ranch manager, if they're not out one day checking cattle, they can make sure that the moves that they had planned actually got executed the way that they wanted to. Um, and then on the computer, we have a bunch of bells and whistles that just basically help with grazing management, which is you know the cornerstone of a lot of our customers' profitability. Um, so saving time with being able to communicate that grazing plan out to everybody in the field on everyone's phones and then making sure that that actually happened and being able to see the photos that um, that the forage got grazed down to the level it was supposed to. 
Um, and then we do a bunch of the math that uh, some of the more serious grazers uh, spend a lot of time, used to spend a lot of time doing, like calculating how many recovery days there are on each pasture. That automatically updates on pasture map, and you can actually see like a, a color-coded um, map of all of your paddocks and, and uh, which ones have been fully recovered. Uh, obviously, you still have to go out and check before you move fritters in. But, um, and then we also calculate everything into animal days per acre. Um, so you know how much you've taken off of, of each of the pastures. Um, and that all exports out to Excels for reporting to, if you, you know, need to report to NRCS or your leaseholder um, or landowner, um, we just make the stuff that isn't the fun part of ranching easier. That's great. And, you know, I, I work in the ranch brokerage business and it seems like there is such a huge need for that that just hasn't existed um, in part because the technology hasn't been there, but now it is. So how did you, how did you come up with the idea for this? Yeah. Uh, well, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't my idea. It was a bunch of producers. So um, my background is I didn't grow up on a ranch. Um, I actually came at it from a, a consumer. I buy direct from my uh, local farmers and ranchers because I had food allergies, um, and then started building relationships with with the ranchers and the farmers who were my friends. And um, I used to build software for other companies, like private companies, um, like manufacturing and sales. Um, and I started, I quit my business career basically to go work as a farmhand on a small family farm, and then several others. And I just kept seeing. For those who were serious grazers, I kept seeing these maps on the barn wall with these large grazing charts with highlighter and pen and like their whole, they basically run their whole life off of this. And as someone who has built software for a living, I was like, oh, well, this is, this data is not shareable, right? Like it's, it is 40 years sometimes of somebody's knowledge um, and they know every nook and cranny of their of their property, they understand how how different seasons impact the landscape. Um, but as you know, there's a lot of ranchers who are nearing retirement age, and the next generation doesn't have that knowledge base. So how do you how can you pass that knowledge on for the next generation, um, and also share all of the things that somebody who's really experienced on one piece of land. Um, can share that with a, a wide number of people like the apprentices and the ranch hands and people who come in uh, for just one day to set up irrigation. Um, it just like, it just drove me crazy that that wasn't shareable. So that was the idea for Pasture Map. Very cool. Um, you, you mentioned one thing, you said you, you quit your business career to, to work on a farm. Can you, can you talk a little <laughs> bit about that? That, that, uh, that definitely struck me. I want to hear more about that. Yeah. So, um, like I said, I had food out, I've had food allergies since I was a teenager. Um, and then after college, I went to go work in management consulting and then later, um, in operations just for a, for a private equity firm. So I, um, what that means is they would send me to random companies that they'd invested in and try to build software to make, um, metrics and numbers more visible to everybody on the front lines. And I really loved that work, but I didn't love just getting thrown into random companies that I didn't particularly have a, any connection to. And the food system and people who produce our food have, has always been really meaningful to me. Like I, I feel like I owe a debt of gratitude to all of the farmers and ranchers in the food system who produce food for, for all the rest of us living in cities. So, um, Basically, I like burned out uh, my business career and I was like, you know what, I, I actually want to be spending my time if I'm going to be building 
um, tools that are useful for people. I want to build tools that are useful for the people who feed me and my family and my loved ones. Um, so that was when I quit and went and worked on a farm. Um, and then I actually ended up coming back to school and getting an ag degree, um, in land use and agriculture. So I wouldn't seem so ignorant. Um, although I, you know, like there's just, there's no way that you're going to know as much about the landscape as the, the guy or gal who's managing it day in and day out. But I wanted to like, at least, you know, know the front end and back end of a cow. You know, yeah. Be able and, to speak the language <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. 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 Um, and, 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 you know, so I got the degree, but also working on farms on four different, there's nothing, nothing that's more educational than getting out on the land and working on it. So, um, six years later, here I am. Um, yeah, just building, still building tools that help facilitate that knowledge to be passed rather than trying to like, trying to uh, supplant it or replace it. Yeah. And so one thing I'm kind of obsessed with is the role that livestock and grasslands can play in just the overall health of the planet. And, you know, I read about it all the time and, and I know some folks that are very active in that and I'm working on some properties that are part of that. And it's just such a, a interesting concept that a lot of people who are in the environmental world, very well, many, very well meaning people don't seem to understand. And so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about active grazing and the role that grazing and livestock can play in kind of healing the planet. Sure. And I, I feel so strongly about this topic. And I think it's something that every one of us in the, I guess, Western Prairie, West, the, everybody related to the West landscapes and to ranching need to be talking about this more to people who aren't as connected to land. Um, so it was probably a stroke of fortune that the first farmer that I worked with was a, an active grazer. So, so he had a grazing plan and we rotated animals, um, every few hours. And so I actually just like grew up in this world where managing the health of your animals and managing the health of the land go hand in hand. And I think that's a, that's the way that a lot of ranchers I know think about it. Um, and what I didn't know was the science that had shown how much active rotations of grazing for the, the soil health um, by bunching animals together around uh, around targeted places. And I've seen people manage this in, in different ways depending on what the goal is for the, for the property, but that can have a tremendous impact in the goals that you want to achieve in bringing back either soil health or bringing back, uh, putting more litter cover on the ground um, and the s- carbon sequestration potential of building soil health is like, Massive. I think if you um, have gotten your hands on Paul Hawkins' new uh, compilation of um, the top 100 levers to reverse climate change, it's called Project Drawdown. Mm-hmm. Um, managed grazing is, I think, number 19. Wow. You know, it's like it's one of the top 20. Uh, and then it, when you couple that with other things like applying compost uh, on land to, to turbocharge soil health or comp, um, compile that with silvopasture, like selective planting of trees, which in some cases is helpful for providing shade for animals, um, you can get even bigger benefits. So it's grazing is a huge lever in reversing climate change. And I think that's something that the the um, livestock manager community is, is pretty aware of. But um, in, in certain circles in the environment, so it's still uh, it's still a message that's getting out there. When you explain it to 
someone who doesn't know anything about it, just uh, somebody who is environmentally minded, but uh, maybe has a misconception about livestock. Once you yeah. take the time to explain it to them and explain how the grass has evolved, how they need to be grazed, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Do, do they always get it? Because a, a guy, there's a guy that I interviewed a while back named Jim Howell, who you, you probably know of, and he was mm-hmm. one of the co-founders of the Savory Institute. And he lives in Boulder and he's, you know, preaching this message to people. And he's, and that was his um, experience that once I can explain it, everybody gets it, but it, it's just a matter of trying to spread the word as much as I can. Yeah. And I think the things that are interesting to me and Jim are probably different from what uh, a kind of environmentalist light might from the city who's just kind of interested in the question of should I eat beef or not? Mm-hmm. And so so for me, I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> right. So <laughs> it's, it's uh, trying to to distill it down to. um so Russ Conser, who's another friend of ours, uh, it, who's very involved in the um, regenerative grazing movement, says it's not the cow, it's the how. Mm-hmm. And I think we should have T-shirts about I think there are some T-shirts. We should have more T-shirts. for that. It's not the cow, it's the how. It's very simple, right? It's not every cow is bad. It depends on the landscape and depends on if you let them run all over the place and they graze down all the species that you want, Um what did uh, Ray Archuleta calls this like ice cream grass. They're going to eat all the ice cream grass. And I'm trying to like, this is how, this is literally how I explain it to to city friends at the dinner table. Like they will eat all the ice cream grass and then they'll trample things and then there will be no more grass. Um, But if you manage them intelligently um, and intentionally by bunching them in different uh, concentrated uh, corrals or paddocks and move them around, then you think about it, you're concentrating all the manure and the fertilizer in one place where you want it. And then you're letting the other 90% of the land rest and recover. And so that just makes intuitive sense to someone. We're like, okay, well, if you're concentrating the impact on one place, the rest of the land has time to recover. And so at the end of the day, you end up with a much healthier landscape. And that's sucking down carbon from the air, putting that below the soil. And so think about trees. Everyone kind of knows that forests sequester carbon. Uh, Most environmentalists know that, right? Like there's, okay, forests are sucking carbon. All right. You're just thinking about the grassland as one really, really vast flat forest, um, and they can sequester a ton of carbon as well. And one third of the the world's landmass is grasslands. So, without getting into the nitty gritty of all the fascinating stuff of like microbes and <laughs> fungal bacteria pathways, it's just look, we're just we're sucking a lot of the bad greenhouse gas and putting them in the you know, people like Ray Archuleta, the, the, some real scientists will probably take issue with that, right? Because they're like, no, it's a carbon cycle. But often that's too complicated for someone who just wanted a 30-second answer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I think being able to to speak the language of normal people is a, is a huge <laughs> talent. You know, engineers are I notorious mean, for not. Yeah. <laughs> the, the engineers are notorious for not being able to explain it. And so I think they need this translator. And so mm-hmm. I, I like the way you describe it. It makes perfect sense right. to me. Um, well, speaking of going into the details, are there any books that you've read that have been impactful in your um, thinking on this subject books that you, you would recommend that other people read if they really want to get into details? Uh, depends on whether, I'm like looking at my bookshelf now. It's it, books that I would recommend to to producers uh, who want to learn this versus um, kind of the more casual um, people who are just interested in in land management. Um, so, in terms of for um, 
for the casual people, I, I always recommend Nicola Han Nyman's Defending Beef for anyone who's interested in just like, hey, is our cows good or bad for the planet? There's also Judy Schwartz's Cows Save the Planet. Um, anything by Joel Salatin, basically. Um, for the for the foodies um, who are interested in how nature relates to food, Dan Barber's The Third Plate. Um, and then David Montgomery's books on soil are fantastic. And then for the uh, for producers, there's just a, a ton of you know much more in-depth resources. The Alan Savory's Holistic Management Handbook is is kind of the um, the Bible for how to begin doing that. But then um, Alan Williams' books, uh, Before You Have a Cow, are also really excellent. Um, there's, I could probably go on for a while. <laughs> no, this is awesome. That's yeah. that's great. I'll uh, I'll make sure to put all those on the website because um, yeah. the, the the more books the better. That's that's perfect. So when you show up at a ranch and you are trying to convince a rancher who's been ranching their way for 40 years to switch over to, to your application. How do you, what is the sales pitch there? How do you, how do you do that? Because I, you know, I know that as you know, and and I know ranchers can some, there's kind of an insular community and they can, they're, they don't take kindly to outsiders sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so how do you break through that to get them to um, fully understand what you're doing and, and adopt this technology? I don't believe in sales pitches, mm-hmm. Ed. Uh, so I think that the, the most successful businesses are the ones who are solving a real problem yep. for a group of people. So um, it's rather for us, we think about it as trying to find the people who are looking for us. Um, because when we built pasture map to begin with, and we built it in partnership with 30 producers who are serious grazing managers. And so if you're a serious grazing manager, you're probably thinking all the time about where your grass is, how it's doing, you're, you're checking it every day. And, um, if you're, if your property's big, then it's, um, it's time management. It's how do I get my, how do I get around to all of these multiple lease properties? How do I make sure that my interns and my staff are trained up to, to, to visualize the landscape and look at it and be able to assess it the way that I can? Um, and so we're, we're looking for people who have that problem uh, and not necessarily trying to change the minds of someone who wants to manage differently. You know, I, don't, I don't really believe in um, a product being able to change somebody's mindset. Uh, I think um, there's a really exciting movement of people who are becoming more and more excited about grazing for soil health. And when they get into it, they, it, it often is overwhelming the amount of, I just rattled off like 10 books. You know, it's, it's like a lot of information, a lot of knowledge. Once you start thinking about things in this mindset of, of ecosystem management, you have to think about the soil. You have to think about the microbes, the wildlife and the cattle. And mainly you're just like trying to make sure that they have water out there. And, you know, this having, um, all of these gurus who are teaching really sophisticated grazing management, like Alan Williams, like Jim Garrish, like Alan Savory, that is a really complex, um, like whole new system than, than what people are used to doing. Um, and so we're looking for the folks who are either already doing that or are making that transition and are finding it like, Oh my gosh, I'm, I now have 10 X more things to think about. And, and I could use a tool to help me keep track of everything. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, when you think about cattle ranching just as a business, just with without considering anything else, it's a it's a tough business. And so, you know, the idea of somebody trying to switch everything up 
at once. That's just, that, that's, doesn't make much sense. So I think, I think mm-hmm. that's a great, um, a great approach. Um, do you have any success stories like from some of your, your clients or your users who have adopted um, the use of your technology and, and how it's kind of transformed their, their operations? Yeah, sure. I can list a few. Um, so Brian Alexander is one of our first customers. He's been using pasture map for three years now. Um, he's in out in Southern Kansas on the Kansas, Oklahoma border, and he uses it to keep track of um, his forage inventory on six to 7,000 acres um, because he's like one guy managing that whole operation and having being able to check every day on what he thought the pasture inventory was last time he drove through a piece without having to go back there and eyeball it again and pull up the photos helps him be able to plan out where he's going to do his moves and how many, how many stocking days there are in that place. So it helps him be able to get his arms around that whole property that he has inherited from his dad and took over a few years ago. And then, um, he recently, two years ago, he was, um, he was in the Anderson Creek wildfire and unfortunately all a hundred percent of his pastures burned. Um, and, and with the recovery efforts, he was able to get back on his feet faster because he was tracking the forage as it came back on each of those pastures, which as you know, is super critical at a time like that when you basically have no stockpile left. Um, another customer of ours, Joe Morris, um, who is ranching out in San Benito Valley, um, contract grazes for three separate properties. And he's got, um, he's got a team of three ranch hands who manage each of those properties. And he used to have to come, uh, have them come in at like really early in the morning at his, uh, house, which is his HQ, you know, and everybody get around a grazing chart. But now with pasture map, he's planned out the next moves for all three of those properties. And so people can just go straight to the, the property that they're managing and know which moves they're supposed to be doing. And then Joe can be on his home property and know that that's all happening. And we thought, I mean, that's, that's, really helpful for Joe, but I think it's also appreciated by the ranch hands not having to drive out another extra half hour early sure. in the morning um, to, to figure out the game plan. Um, and they've said that they appreciate being able to hand their phone or their iPad over to a, an irrigation guy, you know, or some somebody who comes on for just one day, like high school interns who are here to dig for pipeline or something. And, and just being able to hand a, a digital map um, that shows where you are and where all the where all the infrastructure is um, to a new person who's not familiar with your land saves them having to stand around for half a day and, and, and guide them. Right. So then they can just hand that to the new uh, staff member and then they can go off and check cows and repair fence and do all the other important things they have to do. So so we, we realized like we, we thought it was grazing management software, but we're finding that a lot of our uh, customers are using Pasture Map for just team you know, team management, freeing up time. Yeah. That's what I was thinking when you were saying that is that it almost seems like, I mean, have you ever measured or, or done a survey on how many hours this saves ranchers? Cause it seems like it would save if you, if you add up everybody in the team, it could save hundreds of mm-hmm. hours a month. Yeah. Yeah. I, we haven't measured it, but we, we keep hearing anecdotes like this and we'll put more case studies. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really yeah. cool. I mean, cause yeah, like in, in, with anything, you know, time is the, the most valuable commodity. So that's, that's um, right. 
That's really cool. Um, so where do you see, uh, pasture map evolving in the next five years? If you were to, you know, when you're thinking about how this business is going to grow and evolve, what are, what do you think? What, what are your goals? Yeah. Um, we are hearing more requests from our customers to help them, not just with record keeping and mapping, but with active planning. So, uh, in 2018, we're going to launch a, the grazing planning chart, the chart that I talk about seeing a lot on people's barn walls. We're going to make a digital version of that to make it easier for people to plan and replan when things like fire or drought or other extreme events happen. Um, often what we hear is folks will plan the, the season ahead of time on a chart, but then that only lasts as long as the first rain, right? And then you just like, then you've got high ground, low ground, you've got st- stuff that's muddy, you have to change your plan around. And then by the time you're just like fighting fires at that point. So um, people rarely ever get back to replanning during the season, but there's huge there's huge benefits to being able to be flexible during your season and also still have a plan. So a digital plan can do that a lot better than a piece of paper. So, so we're excited about launching that in 2018. And then we're also working on a conservation innovation grant um, that pulls in soil, soil data. Um, Because we, there are thousands of ranchers who now have, you know, sent off their own soil samples or have a biologist come out and do their soil data measurement. But so far, um, there's only been very few carbon credits given to ranchers for their active management of grasslands. And so we want to help be the verification platform that helps ranchers capture that data and share that with the verification agencies. Um, So in the next five years, I mean, the five-year vision would be that ranchers are being paid not only for the cattle that they raise, but also for their grassland management um, activities. And that can come in the form of soil carbon credits. It can also come in in the form of ecosystem management. A lot of our ranchers do um, plan their rotations uh, with, with regard to wildlife habitat and mating seasons and stuff like that. That should all get recorded so that they get credit for it, um, not just you know to be allowed to graze on like a conservation property, but they should actually be paid for ecosystem services. And I think that's a mindset that that the environmental world hasn't come around to yet. Is like the it's not um, a scarcity mindset; it should be an abundance mindset of of rewarding ranchers for the multiple services that they do uh, on the land. Um, a third. Kind of big strategic push for us is enabling the sharing of all of this information. So right now you can share the information with your team and with consultants, but on an aggregate level, um, there there should be insights that you can find out as a new farmer rancher coming back to this generational transition. If you are coming onto a new piece of property, you should be able to log on a pasture map. Right now you can already view what kind of soil types you have on the land um, on pasture map, but you should also be able to see on aggregate in your region without seeing individual farmers or ranchers, like what are people's stocking rates? Um, How many AUM or how many animal days per acre are similar soil types and what are the what are the rainfall patterns in your region? Um, and then I would love to get to a point where peop, um, young farmers and ranchers can then reach out to other ranchers in their region who uh, are using Pasture Map, have experience, and can share that information. But that has to be an opt-in if they want to be contacted and if they want to want to mentor uh, the next generation. But like, give them uh, a, a, uh, the same data like basis to talk and share a similar language when they look at a piece of land. Very cool. Um, the, the second point you were making about the concert, you know, being able to record the, the conservation aspects of the properties here in Colorado, 
we I do a lot of work with conservation easements, and you know the the value of a conservation easement is measured by the the, the value of the property, which is basically um, a, a a product of the development potential. Yet when you see these ranches out in eastern eastern Montana or eastern Colorado that are in the middle of nowhere, but they are. Um, there's really no development potential, but there's a lot of conservation value. I think a tool like yours could be really helpful in helping to value those easements on something other than the development potential, if that makes any sense. I agree. Um, yeah. That's very cool. I'm glad to hear you're doing all that. Um, so I want to hear more about you personally, because I know you've got a very, very interesting uh, backstory and very high achieving backstory. Um, where did you grow up? I actually grew up all over the place. Did you <laughs> so really? I- I went to 14 different schools growing up. Did you really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My dad uh, was an entrepreneur also. Um, and he did. So I'm Chinese American. Uh, and he did uh, an import export business uh, between China and the US in the 80s, where he was basically trying to recycle uh, waste paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was setting up box plants in China. Um, to recycle waste paper and then sell it back out as cardboard boxes. Um, and so we traveled a lot back and forth between Taiwan, Hong Kong, California. Um, and later on he got bitten by the environmental bug and, um, basically tried to set up reforestation as part of that, um, trying to build like a eco-friendly business in, in China with local governments. Um, and, got into wind and solar and basically trying to help factories reduce their emissions um, by installing wind and solar and then selling those credits um, under the Kyoto protocol for, so like the very early first version of credits. So you can see the apple doesn't fall that far from the Well, that was one of my Um, questions was how did you get interested in entrepreneurship? And this is the answer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's all, kids are always so self-centered, right? So I didn't really, put it all together until I, I was like, well, on my journey to starting pasture map. And I was like, Oh, this sounds, this is actually a lot like what dad does. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. So you grew up all over, you, you went to Stanford. Um, did you, when you went to Stanford, did you have the goal of being an entrepreneur in your mind or, or did that come later? No, I didn't. Um, it's kind of, I had this image in my head of what startup entrepreneurs are like. And I was like, oh, they're all these, you know, teenage kids with hoodies. Like they're probably <laughs> dudes. They, they're coders. I'm not a coder. I, I, I was a history major and a poli sci major. And I was like, I like to think about big global problems. I'm not one of these egotistical founder types. Um, <laughs> and I think that's, that's a point I want to make on visibility. It's um, if, but there are women out there listening to your podcast. Like, I think visibility was super important to me coming back to grad school in the, in between I had seen more, um, I, the, the, the community here in the Bay area is starting to realize they really have a gender and diversity problem. And so they're trying to do more on, um, inviting women, people of color, like just like people who don't look like your traditional Silicon Valley entrepreneur type to speak. And for me, that was like the first time, the first time I saw someone who was like me, um, who came from a business background, who like is not particularly about, it's not about hanging my shingle with my name on it. It's about, there's this problem. And I know that I have something that I can contribute to these, this community that I really care about. Um, that was really helpful in me, uh, realizing that I could potentially, call myself an entrepreneur. 
That's really neat. Um, what has been the biggest surprise in your journey in entrepreneurship? I mean, I know everybody has big plans and I'm sure you, you had a very detailed <laughs> business plan written out, but when you were from, from when you had this thing in your head as an idea until the reality of it now, um, what, what has been the biggest surprise overall in the whole process? I think the whole process is just very humbling. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's like the more you if you're doing it right, you, you learn every week how much you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think that that was, I knew that coming in as, you know, not having grown up on ranch, I don't have the 30 years of experience that some of my teammates do being ranch managers. Um, and so like building pasture map to be something that producers will use requires us to just spend a lot of time with producers and following them around and making sure that we watch them use it and not being um, not being prescriptive with what we think. So that's why I've been very hesitant. Even this five-year plan, it's taken me four years to get to a point where I feel even comfortable recommending something to a producer, you know, because they always know their land better yes. um, and they always know what's, what's going on better than I do. So um, on that level, I think that's, that's part of our company DNA that, that has helped us with success because they, I don't think producers feel like pastor is trying to tell them what to do. I, th- I think people feel like it's a tool um, that uh, helps them capture their own knowledge. Um, and on the, the building a company side, it's just, there's just so much. I, I didn't know how to do sales. <laughs> I didn't know how to do, I still don't know how to do marketing. Um, <laughs> I, I don't I didn't know how to build an engineering team. It's all, it's for those who are curious about learning and learning like new stuff every t- that I think, Farming and ranching is definitely one of those professions where you're like you're always you're always a beginner and you're always in awe of nature. I think entrepreneurship uh, of any type is also like that. Yeah, I was thinking that the, I was thinking the same thing because I was thinking ranching is a is a really tough business that requires constant learning, constant hard work, and then startups are <laughs> the exact same thing, a really, really <laughs> tough business. And so you've, you've kind of combined the two toughest things and you're making a great go of it. So I, I admire that. <laughs> Very Thank impressive. You, appreciate it. So, um, you know, you went to Stanford, you worked for McKinsey, you did private equity. If I, if I, if I'm correct oh. on that, I mean, you, you have this really, really stellar resume and I feel like that would have set you in a position where you could have started uh, a startup in any any sector of business. Um, you, you've kind of alluded to this already in conversation, but why did you, what, why did you choose agriculture over, you know, say something like Uber or, or something like that? Is it, <laughs> is it because the, uh, because of your connection to, to agriculture and food? Yeah, it's personal. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, I said before, I, I owe a debt of gratitude to farmers and ranchers for producing food that I can eat that doesn't make me break out in hives. But also, I mean, in terms of food, I feel like food is at the intersection of everything that matters to me, like emotionally and also like where people sit down and and share. Food is such a deeply connected, uh, it's a connector for families for societies for communities and the people who produce our food are often not recognized in that i think that's not um that's not the case increasingly now like we're we're, beca- we're beginning to recognize and honor the people who produce our food but i still think we need more of that and in terms of agriculture there is no bigger sector in the world that is important for us to figure out uh than how to produce food for everybody on the planet in a way that 
is honors the environment honor and makes sure that we have planet earth for for future generations um and so like when i when i thought about the many different interesting companies that you could join it was always about let's do something in food because if we don't figure this out we're all mm -hmm. screwed um yeah. yeah and when i realized from from going to grazing conferences just how much carbon can be sequestered and how much it's a i was looking for that win 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 and to me adaptive grazing management empowering ranchers to do that is a win 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 for the planet for the people for their own profitability um, for carbon sequestration. And it's, it's just such a hopeful message. Um, and it's something that feels bigger than me, like going back to not, not spending time on the ego part of it. It feels like this movement to bring adaptive regenerative grazing to, to manage millions and millions of acres around the world better, uh, create more profitable livelihoods for the next generation of producers and restore the environment and in the process produce meat that is better for you and nutrient dense. Like that's not just a win, win, win. Like I can't um, think of a, I can't think of anything I would rather put the rest of my lifetime uh, and the rest of my career into than helping support this movement uh, with the heroes, uh, the people who have already been pioneers of that movement. I just have so much respect for that audacious vision. You need to get on the uh, public speaking uh, circuit. <laughs> I, now I'm all, I'm all hyped up and excited. <laughs> You're really good at that. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, um, so when you look at agriculture and you look at entrepreneurship and business, um, do you have any, any heroes or role models and they could be alive or dead, just people you admire in either, either sector that, uh, not so much that you model yourself after, but just, just people that, that you think about and admire and think other people should know more about. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously everybody, a lot of people look up to Joel Salatin. Um, I think for me, my personal um, mentor is Dr. Alan Williams. Uh, he's a, uh, he's a, 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 an, a beef nutritionist who has really, um, done a ton of work on education around adaptive grazing for both the animal performance and for, and for grasslands. Um, and I met him at the grass fed exchange, uh, conference, which was one of the first conferences I ever went to. And I was, I mean, I was scared going into the ranching world. You know, I was like, okay, there's a sea of really big belt buckles and big hats and beard. And, and I'm just this, I'm this Asian woman, right? Who shows up there and people are like, are you lost? You know, where, where are you trying to be? And, and I met, uh, Dr. Alan Williams and also Todd Churchill and Russ Conser, um, Wayne Rasmussen, some of, some of the members of the committee at the Grass Exchange at that first conference, and they were just Will Winter, just people who are have spent their lives. You know, they're a generation older than me. They spent their lives building this movement, and and their their whole reason for doing it is just to to help fellow producers. Um, and they really welcomed me with open arms and uh, welcomed me into the community. And so I, I feel like I owe a lot of gratitude to them, and I just continue to be in such admiration for the work that they do for their community. Well, if you gave them the, if you showed them even like 10% of the the passion that you're, you're showing me for the, for the movement, I can understand <laughs> why they were so excited. <laughs> what about just straight up business? Doesn't have anything to do with agriculture. Any, any entrepreneurs or business people that you admire? 
Yeah. Um, let's see. One of the ones I most admire is the uh, founder of Zen Payroll, which name is now the name of that company is now Gusto. Yeah, I know that company. Um, yeah, you know that company. Yeah. So Josh is just a very humble founder, um, and he has. I've heard him speak a couple of times and uh, have taken some of his his mantras to heart uh, about building a team culture that but he frequently talks about that company as the how do you build the kind of company that you want to spend the rest of your life running and I, I really appreciate that long-term mindset in in a, in Silicon Valley where things are so boom or bust um, I think that's rare and then he also spends um, a lot of time coaching his team on um, don't don't do heroics heroics don't scale uh, which for me is pretty important because I, I came from a the, a pretty like fast paced, one might say cutthroat business world where you're expected to just grind. And um, part of building your own company is you get to build your own culture and building the kind of culture and trying to be the kind of manager that I would have wanted to have manage me where um, you care about their their personal health and wellness and you care about um, them learning and trying to actively coach. It's like strong performers are always going to try to impress you by working, overworking themselves. And to have a manager say, Hey, hey, you should slow down. And this is a marathon, not a sprint. Heroics don't scale. You could probably pull an all nighter for two days. And then like after that, I'm not going to get anything out from you anymore because you're going to be burnt out. Um, I think for young people and because we're a startup, we hire a lot of fresh grads for young people, that's really important. Like that's that's the kind of mentorship that I had. I wished I had had when I was in my twenties. So um, I try to role model myself after other successful uh, founders who are building that kind of culture. That's refreshing to hear, especially in, in the world that you're, you know, the startup world that you're operating in. Um, so you've worked at these ran you've worked with ranchers and you've you've visited and worked on farms and agricultural operations all over the world and you work so closely with all these people. Are there any kind of overarching life lessons that you've learned from working with the ranchers and farmers um, that that you could share with us? Yeah, I, I learn from them all the time. I think for for me, it's the the taking the long view. And I just talked about slowing down. That's advice that I often should take for myself as well. Um, it, when you're talking to a producer whose family has been stewarding some land for six generations or someone who's just a new producer who's come in and, and has fallen in love with this landscape and wants to know the history and wants to steward it, um, they take the long view, right? So things don't have to be like urgent. You don't have to fix every single thing immediately. Um, and I think taking that inner calmness um and the and perspective on how do we want and this is something that i've learned from both native hawaiian uh producers as well as as native american um producers here as well it's like you're thinking about this land on like a thousand year scale and producer maori producers in new zealand think about they they um have steward their land on like a they have a 500 year plan Wow. for stewarding the land that, that they've gotten returned to them. And that's just that kind of perspective really quiets you and, and humbles you on um, what, what, how do you build things with intentional, with, with intentionality towards that kind of time scale. Um, and, and then relationships also on that longer time frame. Uh, one of my mentors says you should treat, you should treat people 
everyone you meet in the business world or in, you know, as, as if you're going to know each other forever, which in this day and age is true, you know, you're going to know people forever. So, um, I think that perspective, having that perspective helps me, um, align my actions a lot more with not, there's not, there often isn't a trade-off when I think I want, oh, you want something, you want to make a sale or you want to get land this partnership. Um, and I think when you, when you short, when you shorten incentives, this is going to get philosophical to like, no, I like philosophical, like the whole world right now, which I think like the business world typically is, is, is operating on short-term incentives. Our extraction of resources, our consumers, like it's all based on short-term incentives and short-term gains. But when you spread things out, when you smooth out to like a thousand year timescale, or maybe that's too much to expect, but like a seventh, seventh generation, right? At that kind of timescale, um, then the, what the right thing to do is uh, becomes much more clear. I agree with all that. Very, very well put. You should write a book. You ever thought about that? <laughs> uh, After we execute our five-year plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe so, it should be a 50-year plan. Yeah, that's right, just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I've got some kind of quick questions that I've asked of everybody that I've had on the podcast, and it's it's pretty cool to hear all the different answers and compare and contrast. So I'd like to run through those with you real quick, and then I'll let you get back to your important stuff, more important than talking to me. <laughs> Um, so, uh, are there any, do you have any favorite books related to the American West or really any subject? It doesn't have to be agriculture or business. Just, are there any books that have been impactful in your life? You've, you've mentioned a ton already. One of my favorite books uh, related to the West is Angle of Repose. My wife just, Uh, just finished that and loved it. So good. Yeah. Uh, anything by Wendell Berry. Um, and yeah, Angle of Repose. Anything by Wendell Berry. Oh, I need to put in a plug for the favorite book I read this year was Lentil Underground um, by Liz Carlisle. And it's about a bunch of producers in Montana that started growing lentils. Cool. <laughs> I've never heard of crops. that. Yeah. It's about this like underground, you know, grassroots movement to build soil health in Montana. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll look that one up. Um, do you have any favorite documentaries or films? I'm not a big film buff. Um but I really like Wong Kar Wai, which is a Cantonese. Uh, he's a Cantonese film producer that produces like pretty, pretty evocative cinematography. Uh, his one of his most famous films is In the Mood for Love, mm-hmm. um, and that's his cinematography was the the um, inspiration for the way that um, Moonlight was filmed. They had a big influence on. If you've seen Moonlight, oh cool, the yeah, Oscar, yeah, 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 very cool. Um, I just saw a, a, a series of short documentaries on Netflix. I've only watched one of them, but it's called, I think it's called Rotten and it's about the food industry. And oh. the first one I watched was about the honey industry and how uh, a huge amount of honey is counterfeit honey and it's not real honey. It's uh, it's just fake sweetened stuff that gets shipped in from other countries. And I, I had no idea about any of it, but they're, they're like 45 minutes each. So it's, um, if you have Netflix, you might enjoy that. It was pretty cool. I will check that out. Um, so you've got a lot going on. Obviously you're working as, as hard as you can. You've got all this, the businesses going. How are there any, um, hobbies or activities you enjoy that may be surprising to the listener? Actually, no, we haven't even, we just, what are your normal hobbies? 
Yeah, what do you do? You run? I you... cook a lot. I run, I cook. Um, I have. I usually have a freezer full of beef and lamb from our friends. Cool. Um, our, com- our company actually rotates buying quarters and halves from all the different producers in our, in our area. Um, do you do anything funny? One, do I anything <laughs> funny? Um, I like jumping in really cold water. Um, oh, so, me too. <laughs> really? So I I'm love part it. of this club um in the bay area called the dolphin club that of these crazy people who like swimming in the bay without wetsuits <laughs> oh my gosh i was just there and went surfing uh, a few weeks ago and i couldn't imagine getting in that water i mean my my hands went numb and i was wearing a wetsuit just like i mean okay so you see everybody under 40 is wearing a wetsuit but then you go in um, this club my club is mostly 80 year olds and so when you see an 80 year old who's going in like getting in there in a speedo and a swim cap and they just give you this withering look. You're like, okay, okay. I can't be able <laughs> I mean, I, I, actually, that's kind of normal for me because I feel like I spent a lot of my time out in nature following older people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're tough. Yeah, yeah the Man, cold water rivers. stuff. I love the cold water. I take, a, I take a cold shower every day. It's one of the best things for you. It really is. Yeah. Um, I, I could talk about that all day, too. Um, so... <laughs> With all the time you spent outdoors and on these ranches, is there any, um, and farms, is there any uh, experience that comes to mind um, as as being one of the most memorable or most powerful experiences you've had in the outdoors? And it could be a funny experience, a scary experience, just a, a cool experience. I'm going to tell a funny one and a, a, a memorable one. Um, so the... F- <laughs> The first time I drove through, I've driven through several Midwest storms now, and they're terrifying to me from the Bay Area, right? So um, I'd just gotten done at uh, Gabe and Paul Brown's place, um, and I was driving across North Dakota into into the Canadian border, and he, Paul Brown, who's Gabe's son, was like, in the summers, we get 60-mile-an-hour hail, and sometimes they're the size of a tennis ball, and sometimes the tornadoes come with them. And I was like, you're totally pulling my – that doesn't happen. What are you talking about? And, and, and I was listening to the radio, and, and the tornado warning came on and was like – and said that there was a tornado warning and a summer storm coming up behind me, moving at 60 miles an hour, and I was moving at about 60 miles an hour, and it was coming up right behind me. It was terrible. And then a hail started, and I just got so freaked out. <laughs> I tried to drive to the nearest thing that looked like a barn, which was a couple miles away, and I ended up in a ditch. Uh, wow! <laughs> so I was prepared. I mean, I was pr- protected from the hail for an hour, but then I was also in a ditch. Uh, and then it was sunset, and then I hiked out a couple miles, and some um, some of the neighbors came and dragged me out with their truck, which was pretty funny. <laughs> and they were like, "Did you intend to drive into the ditch?" <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, I'm from the West Coast. Um, uh, But but the other um, thing that happened on that trip was I got to wake up in a prairie that was so alive, both on Gabe Brown's place and Paul's place, and also I was driving up to Neil Dennis's place in Saskatchewan, uh, and I, I've just never been part of a landscape that like the whole thing is a living, breathing, um, ringing organism where you, I mean, I was woken up at 4am because the birds were so loud. And then I, when we walked out and we drove out into, um, the prairie and you've just got like clouds of crickets and clouds of different like butterflies and all kinds of things bouncing up in front of, in front of the four wheeler and, and the cacophony of like how much they were making noise, you know, the, the ringing, it's like the whole prairie was singing and it was just this, I, it was a, 
yeah, it was a pretty all of nature moment. I, I can't really describe it, but it was life changing for that was when I, I, I'd already built, it was already three years into building passion at that point, but I hadn't internalized what, what it means, um, to bring a prairie back to life. Very cool. That's very cool. Um, where is your favorite location in the West? If you can pick one, that's a hard question. Super hard. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I'd answer that. Somebody I, asked me one of these questions the other day when we were recording. And I, was, I was like stumbling and mon- I didn't know the answer. So <laughs> I don't have a favorite, but from it's anywhere that has grasslands where I can get down and kind of be crawling in the grass and looking at the different insects and looking at the soil and digging around on dung. Which so that's pretty much any day that I get to drive out and visit a producer and get out onto the land with them, hopefully with some mountains in the back. You know, that's any one of the, any one of those places makes me really happy. Cool. And what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? That's another hard one. I think the best piece of advice, uh, of business advice I, I've received was from my mentor, who is my, um, my professor. She said, uh, treat people like you're going to know them forever. That's very good. Very, very good. So last big question, if you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast or offer some advice or impart some words of wisdom to the people listening who love the American West in one way or another, um, what would that be? Share your love. Share your love of of the West. Share your love of the land. I I think that... um, Having grown up outside of this world and coming into it, it was it was intimidating to get into this world. And the the fact that I was welcomed with open arms, um, and well, you know, welcomed and made people made space for me to to develop my own love uh, for the land. And um, that's something that's pretty rare because a lot of people these days in cities don't really have that much access to open spaces. Um, so share that as much as you can. It's we all. We all deserve to build a relationship with with the land. That's great. So, how can people connect with you and learn more about Pasture Map? Um, where where should they look online? www.pasturemap.com. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. I'm very uh, very excited about this, and I can't wait to see how it continues to evolve. Thank you, Ed. I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. 
All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.